Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Austin, Washington Editor. And Karen Koch-Tusman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, AstraZeneca has data from its U.S. trial. Christopher Austin is stepping down as Director of NCATS. We'll take a look at his legacy at the NIH Group. FDC has an aggressive new approach to pharma merger regulation. It will include biotech M&A. SPACs, they could grease the wheels for European biotechs looking for a U.S. listing. But first, the BioCentury team is prepping for our 21st BioEquity Europe conference. It will be an all-digital event scheduled for May 17th to 19th. This year's conference theme, Europe's Next Act. European innovators help pave the way for the world's first COVID-19 vaccines. So what's coming next from Europe's academic and biotech leaders? We now have 120 companies and counting confirmed to present on the program that were handpicked by our editorial team. You can listen to their pre-recorded presentations starting April 5th and arrange one-on-one virtual meetings with company management during the event in May. Learn more at our website, bioequityeurope.com. Some sad news to begin the program today. AstraZeneca's Jose Baselga has passed away. We'd like to take a look at his legacy at the company as well as at Memorial Sloan. Karen? When Jose Baselga came to AstraZeneca, it came amid the company's restructuring of its oncology as it was dissolving its metamune biologics unit, bringing early and late stage development under the same roof. He kicked off some major transformations. One was the push into new modalities. So the antibody drug conjugates partnership with Daiichi, that really happened under his watch. I think he had experience with those compounds at Sloan Kettering before he came on board and really saw their potential. Another piece was focusing on biomarker-driven drug development, something that's now pretty mainstream in oncology. It's something where he's definitely made a mark both at the Institute and at the company, and it's really sad news. Yeah, I think the thing about Jose Viselka was that he was a physician scientist. He pioneered precision medicine, not only in drug development, but also in the hands-on treatment of patients. I've met patients who told me that they were alive today because of care that they'd received from him that they didn't think they would have received from other people. And everybody that I knew who had encountered him and spoke with him really said that he was a fantastic physician. He was a fantastic human being. I I also think it would be remiss if we didn't point out that he was treated very shabbily, I think, by Memorial Sloan Kettering. He was hounded out after ProPublica, the nonprofit investigative news organization, and the New York Times wrote stories saying that he hadn't disclosed all of his ties, contracts, and consulting with industry in every one of his publications. He felt, I think, that those ties didn't need to be disclosed in some of the publications that he had that were about policy issues that weren't about the development of particular drugs. And in any case, they were well known and he hadn't made any effort to hide them. There may have been some kind of an infraction there. I think be more accurate to say probably there wasn't a clear understanding of what he should and shouldn't do. In any case, he was just drop kicked out. And I think that it was a very poor way to to treat him. Yeah. Under his direction at MSKCC, the Cancer Center really became a leader in early phase clinical trials for cancer therapies. 
And he played a leading role in clinical trials for a few just household names among targeted breast cancer therapies, Herceptin, Pergetta, Tykerb, Affinitor. He'll certainly be missed, but his impact will continue to be felt by cancer patients around the world. Let's stay with AZ on a more positive note. The company has released data from its U.S. trial in more than 30,000 patients. It shows 100% efficacy against severe or critical COVID-19 disease and hospitalization. That's always the big number. I think the overall efficacy number was closer to 79%. This program has been dogged by issues, though, some self-created some not that, well, are frankly deeply concerning, such as what we have seen over the past week or so in Europe, where countries have been suspending vaccinations with the vaccine, even though the reports of adverse events are very much in line with the general population and other COVID-19 vaccines. These data also come at a time when at least for the U.S., it's pretty well set with its vaccine supply. Steve, what thoughts do you have here on the impact that this vaccine will have in the U.S. and around the world? I think that the FDA scrutiny of their application, and if FDA decides to grant the emergency use authorization, will have a tremendous impact, not in the United States so much. You're right. I think that by the time it, it comes onto the market in the United States, we're already going to be well served by vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. But I think that the FDA kind of stamp of approval could be really important in developing countries. And that's where the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to have a tremendous impact. They're making very large quantities of it. It's being made in India. It's being made in other countries. And it's being sold at a very affordable price. It could really have a tremendous impact on the pandemic around the globe. And given all of the uncertainty about the safety and efficacy from Europe, and frankly, the way that AstraZeneca has mishandled both the trials and especially the communication about its data, an FDA stamp of approval could be really important in reducing hesitancy and uncertainty, giving people confidence that this is a vaccine that they should take. Any sense of when they might seek emergency use authorization, Steve? So what their press release said that it's going to be within a couple of weeks, right, that they're going to release mm -hmm. the data and seek authorization. FDA has been taking about two weeks to review EUA applications and then schedule an advisory committee meeting. After the advisory committee meetings, the three that they've held so far for COVID-19 vaccines, they've authorized the vaccines very quickly within a day or two. You add all that up, it sounds like it might be, what, three weeks, a month, something like that. All right. Well, let's turn to NCATS. After leading the National Center for Advancing Translational Science for nearly a decade, Christopher Austin is taking his talents to Cambridge, Mass., to become CEO partner at Flagship Pioneering. Karen, you head up translational for us here at BioCentury. Any thoughts on his legacy during his nine or so years at NCATS? I think one of the interesting things that he really advanced there was this concept of moving away from animal models that have been the standard for a long time, but 
create often flawed representations of disease and into more what we now consider translationally relevant human tissue-based models. One of my favorite quotes that we've gotten at BioCentury is one from, I think, 2017, where he said, one can lay a lot of the clinical failures at the pause of the animal data. And so among the ways that he advanced more clinically relevant translation was in NCATS's efforts to push organs on chip models, organoid models, just models based on human tissues, cells from patients, which are now something that's pretty mainstream, something that everyone wants to do. And certainly something that the folks at Flagship talk about a lot is using human relevant models and data. Played a big role in carving out what is translation, what it is and what it isn't. And I think he really pushed back on the idea that translation was, okay, you have the basic researchers that discovered the interesting, rigorous scientific nugget. And then translation was just all about doing some rote tests to prove out, you know, kind of dot the I's and cross the T's. He really advanced the idea that translation was this ongoing iterative feedback process where you learn new things about the biology and the compounds as you de-risk things before they go into the clinic and then take data from the clinic and put it back into compound development. I think those are all part of his legacy. I think Chris has also had an impact on all of NIH. One of the things that he pushed really heavily and that's had an impact in COVID is repurposing, repurposing drugs that have gone through phase two, maybe even phase three, and then been dropped either for commercial reasons or for lack of efficacy. But his point was that we know a lot about these drugs now, and if we can find other uses for them, it can be a kind of short circuit to get things to patients very quickly. The other thing that he did is really emphasize the importance of collaborating with patients. All the projects that NCATS has done have had patient input pretty much from the start. That's something that he pioneered. I think it's also interesting. We're talking about him like he died or something like that. You know, he, he's, he's, just, he's just, he's gone, he's gone to go and work at, at Flagship. It'll be really interesting to see what he's, he's going to do Q angry next. note from Flagship. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's look at Flagship. I know, Karen, you have talked to the partners at Flagships frequently over the past few years for emerging company profiles. What's the fit for Chris at the firm? Oftentimes when I talk to flagship and learn about some of the things their companies are doing, I get the thought that it's like they're doing translational science that you would expect from a lab at an an academic center, but with just a ton more money to do it at extremely high levels. It seems like actually a pretty good fit. In a way, I think about some of the stuff that flagship is doing as NCATS type translational science, but turbocharged. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out. That, that is interesting because one of the things that Chris didn't manage to do when he was at NCATS is get a lot of money allocated for the center. And so it's kind of ironic. If you're going from government, which people think of as having bottomless pits of money, to the private sector, and he might actually be able to invest more, especially in specific projects at flagship than he could at NCATS. All right. We're deep into the alphabet soup part of this pod. We've tackled NCATS. Facts are coming in now. We've got FTC. Steve, you dug into this last week. The Federal Trade Commission is signaling that it will take an aggressive new approach to pharma merger regulation, one that will include biotech M&A. Now, in my opinion, at least, acquisitions of small companies are essential to the ecosystem that we follow here at BioCentury. 
How concerned should biotechs be, Steve? I don't know. Concern probably isn't the right word. I, I think it's certainly something to watch. I think it's something that the industry trade associations and the companies themselves should take the time to make comments to the FTC to get their voice heard. Basically, what happened is the FTC acting chair, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, announced the formation of a multinational working group that's going to consider new approaches for regulating pharma mergers. But she also said the FTC isn't going to wait for the results from the working group. It's going to take a more aggressive stance, and that's the word she used, aggressive, toward pharma mergers. And this is something that she's been pushing for years and which Republican commissioners have opposed. She's also made it clear that she's not just talking about mega mergers of large companies. She's also talking about the acquisition of medium and smaller size companies by big pharma companies. The people that I spoke with about it said, yeah, there's going to be more friction involved in some of the M&A activity involving biotechs, but it's not like the FTC is going to completely upend the model, the business model that the biotech industry has created, but it is going to be looking at things more closely. And by more closely, it also more broadly. In the past, and this is what Slaughter has opposed, in the past, it's basically just lined up the products that the two companies have market or are developing. And if there's an overlap, in some cases, it's made one of the companies divest products to prevent a monopoly situation. And what Slaughter has said is, no, you have to look at this more broadly. You have to consider what are going to be the effects on innovation. For example, if a bigger company is buying a medium-sized company and the medium-sized company has a lot of drugs in the pipeline, is the bigger company going to just jettison those, just take the revenues from the marketed products of the medium-sized company? And if it were going to do that, the FTC might look askance at it and say, well, that's really going to be bad for innovation. Another point, even on the mega mergers, there's controversy within the life sciences industry about the value of mega mergers and whether the FTC should be playing a role in preventing them. Some people say that these mergers always erode value, that they are always bad for biomedical progress, that a lot of people get laid off, a lot of drug development projects that are underway get killed and never get revived, and that there's just no good that comes from it at all. Other people look at it and have told me and said, look, you have to have some way of dealing with large pharma companies that aren't being as productive as they ought to be. If you can't have these mega mergers, you're going to have kind of zombie dinosaur companies just clumping around forever with no way of putting them out of their misery. It's interesting. There's you know different ways to look at it. That's a great way to look at it, Steve. And you and I have been wanting to make a zombie film for years now. And I don't think there's been a zombie dinosaur movie. So that could, Certainly could not a, a zombie pharma, zombie mega pharma. Well, I'll, no. I'll, I'll get my son, the comic book artist, Elliot, to draw up a storyboard for us. And we'll, we'll be off to the races. I'm sure we won't be messed around. And, then, and, and it should have little biotech mammals that go around sucking on the <laughs> eggs of the dinosaurs. And, um... <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's turn to our deal in focus. We, of course, do not need to tell you that SPACs are hot right now, but let's look at some numbers. According to data collected by Kempen & Co., there were 248 SPAC IPOs in 2020 that raised a collective $82 billion. The 2021 numbers and what were in March have already surpassed that with 251 SPACs 
going public a year to date. This would have been as of last week. And they've raised a combined $79 billion. Last week, European Biotech Acquisition Corp, sponsored by European VC LSP, raised $120 million in a bumped-up IPO. And that deal made it the first SPAC to list from a major life sciences-focused European VC. Why are SPACs important now for Europe? Uh, It's a good question, Karen. For one, it opens up a potentially less complicated avenue for European companies to come to NASDAQ. And that's important because European VCs have been raising record funds in the past few years. That means there's more well-funded private European biotechs that fit the profile for a NASDAQ listing. Now, the traditional IPO route to NASDAQ for European biotechs it can be a bit daunting. It involves a minimum of a year to two years of relationship building in the U.S. so that when the roadshow starts, they aren't an unknown. At the same time, the company has to put together a syndicate for a crossover round. That includes some U.S. investors. And again, that's a lengthy and time-consuming process. It's interesting because looking at what might be some good targets for SPACs, mm-hmm. I think going through our BCIQ database, it looked like there were I think on the order of 80 something that fit the bill of having gone into the clinic and also raised over 25 million, quite a few that had raised over 50 million. And yeah, it looks like we're going to see more activity there in the future. Yeah, I, I think so. So it will be interesting to see whether other VCs will follow suit. You can read more about this in our colleague Stephen Hansen's story on biocentury.com. Well, looking ahead this week on Biocentury, Editor-in-Chief Simone Fishburn on a SEPI initiative to get from sequence to vaccine in 100 days, and Senior Editor Lauren Martz analyzes the next generation of checkpoint targets and the move to addressing them with new modalities. We'll also bring you regular features such as our daily data bite and the latest from our Emerging Company Profile series. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google, all of those good places where you get your podcasts. And music for all of our podcasts is provided by our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.